The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you um, that we can meet here. Um, We thank you, Lord, for just those words that we could sing that draw our attention to you. Lord, that you are the one source of hope and value and life. And uh, Lord, it's in relationship with you that all of life makes the most sense. So Lord, as we open up uh, this passage here in Ephesians this morning, would you help us to become aware of our need for you? Would you help us to understand what it means to walk in wisdom? what it means to understand your will, Lord, and really what it means to be filled with your spirit. So God, work, speak. Um, Lord, use just uh, my small human thoughts and words and um, use your word, Lord, to transform, to renew our hearts, to, Lord, speak in a way that only you can speak to us. So Lord, would you be so gracious to do that this morning? Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as I've had opportunity to preach, I've been working through a number of sections found in Ephesians 4 and 5, and we've been considering the Christian way of life and how we are to walk in light of gospel realities that are secured for us in Christ. So previously, we've looked at what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, We considered how God has made us as Christians a new self, a new person, and he's given us a new identity as children created after the likeness of God. And as children, uh, we are to walk in love as Christ has loved and has, has loved us, and as children we are to walk in light and not be associated with the works of darkness as God himself is light and doesn't partner with darkness. And this week, we're going to look at the last imperative of this section where we are commanded to walk in wisdom. And so wisdom is one of those things that is valued and appreciated uh, when it's on display. But in and of itself, wisdom is not something that our modern world values or perhaps any other fallen previous generation has valued. We'll go to great lengths to gain wealth, to obtain education or intelligence, to travel the world, to seek out power and significance, to satisfy our own internal cravings, desires, longings, to even hone our our physique. Yet, why is it that you rarely hear someone's New Year resolution state that they are going to pursue wisdom? We'd probably laugh at that a little bit, right? As As we hear someone say, I'm, I'm, My New Year's resolution, I'm going to get wise this year. And so that that kind of pushes the question, what is wisdom? How do we get it? What is its utility? What's its end purpose? What does the Bible have to say about that? And here in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, Paul is going to unpack what it means to be created in the likeness of God and how he commands us to walk in wisdom. So if you have a Bible, let's look at this passage together and we'll, we'll go from there. So Ephesians 5.15 starts like this. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the word of the Lord this morning. So, Though we are children of God and have been given a new identity, it's not just as if we suddenly or fully embody love and light and wisdom. We rather are to grow up into this identity as as we seek to walk as God has called us to walk. But we all know and experience this, that left to ourselves, we lack love. We too frequently associate with darkness, and we are more often foolish than wise. So even though we we lack and have great need for growth and wisdom, there's an important point for us to consider, and it's this, that God uses wise, living Christians to build the church in order to bring glory to his name in Christ. So God uses wise, living Christians to build the church so that he might bring, bring glory to his name. So for us as Christians, to the degree that we can give ourselves to uh, biblical spiritual wisdom is the degree that we'll be able to participate in and contribute to the edification of the church and ultimately the glory of God. So as we look at this morning's text and we see how it's organized, there are three primary different commands or imperatives that are provided here. And as has been typical with Paul throughout the section, this section of the letter in chapters 4 and 5, he provides us with both a prohibition of what not to do and then an affirming command of what we are to do. And so you'll see this in the form of not this, but this. And each of these commands expose how we are still prone to folly or how we simply lack wisdom to best engage in in kingdom-minded living. We see that we are all prone to wasting our time. We're simply drifting along with the current and raging waters of these evil days. We see that we are all prone to be concerned about our own will, our own plans, ambitions, hopes, desires, often without a second thought of God and what he wants. And we also see that we're all prone to think that we can be filled by the pleasures of the world. And in this passage, it talks about alcohol in that way, but we could think about good food experiences, uh, intimate relationships, phone scrolling, vacations. We are something looking to fill ourselves with the pleasures of the world. And in each of these examples, uh, we lack something. And ignorantly, foolishly, we go about our lives as if we can find fulfillment and meaning apart from God. And what we need here is what Paul is going to move us towards. And this is where we need a reframing shift in our perspective. And this reframing shift, I think, comes at an opportune time as we enter the new year. And it's just, it's always interesting how the Lord aligns things, and this text was not planned in light of the new year, but here's a good call here for us. And through this, a reframing shift in our perspective, 
Hopefully that that will lead to a God-honoring, life-giving, church-edifying wisdom. So in verse 15, we see that this whole section, section begins here with the command, look carefully then how you walk. So here it's look or watch. We need to carefully look or watch, and, and this applies to everything that's going to follow. There, there's a call for us to actively engage the Lord with our life, with our choices, our priorities, and we must come before Him and kind of openly, open-handedly uh, look at and evaluate our lives. And so Paul kind of op- opens the door for us to do that. Look carefully at how you walk. But most of us don't actually like this because there's something deep-seated. There's a remnant of the fall of original sin that doesn't like to admit our weakness, our inability, our poor, poor uh, recurring habits or choices, or even just our lack of wisdom. And we're, we're too proud uh, and think too much of ourselves and don't want to open ourselves to the reality that we might actually be acting foolishly, <laughs> in need of wisdom. And so that's why if, if you were to tell someone, I'm going to pursue wisdom this year, what's the implication of that? Well, you're admitting you're a fool, right? <laughs> no, one, no one's going to admit that, right? We're, we're going to kind of put that on, on some other things. But there's, there's something there that I think we should grasp or at least be open to that we are foolish. We are in need of wisdom. And so as we get into these commands, I, I want us to all just take a moment and to pray in our heart and ask God to grant you humility to listen, to hear perhaps what the Spirit needs to highlight this morning in your life. Where do you lack wisdom, and where are you missing out on a kingdom-oriented vision and joy? So just in your heart, invite the Lord to speak, right? Humble ourselves Admit yourself foolish, prone to folly, and see what the Lord might do with that, in that. So, as we look at these three commands, these three imperatives, um, they'll make up my three basic points for this morning. And the first one is this. Walking in wisdom seeks to make good use of time in these evil days. So, walking in wisdom seeks to make good use of time in these evil days. So verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So we are to walk not as unwise, but as wise. So what what is meant by wise? Well, the Bible has plenty to say on this, but the most definitive place to go is the wisdom literature, appropriately named, right? You think of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, even Job has elements of this. But Proverbs 1.7 sums up wisdom well when it says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom acknowledges God as the first and foremost important being And being the first and foremost important being, he is the one who defines all reality, all realities. So wisdom, and the start of wisdom, is a God consciousness that puts him at the center of all things. 
acknowledges that he is the foundation from which everything builds upon. And to miss this point is to lack wisdom. So we, we need to seek wisdom. Or in order to uh, seek wisdom, we need to seek God. So then, what does it mean to be unwise? Well, the second part of the Proverb 1-7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The second part is, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So fools, those who are foolish, or folly, is to reject or despise that fear or knowledge of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So folly, simply put, is to live without a God consciousness. Folly is a blindness or an ignorance or, an, or uh, the inability to remember and to return to God. So in order to look carefully at how you walk, there's just a simple call to a God consciousness. And that's not standard issue at birth. <laughs> that's something that the Spirit must do in, in our heart, in our life, to direct our eyes to Him. So there's a simple call to a God consciousness, and we need to remember God. We need to speak to Him. We need to seek to know and to understand who He is and His ways. But Paul, he goes on uh, to charge us with this. that We are to make the best use of time because the days are evil, right? So, in one sense, he's not just talking about wisdom and God consciousness, but he gives kind of a qualification or a reason here. He goes on to say that we are to make the best use of time because the days are evil. So another way to say this of making the best use of time is to redeem the time. So why does time need to be redeemed? Why are we to make the best use of time? Well, as we think about the nature of time... Time is constantly slipping away. Time is a finite resource that we can never gain back once it's lost. And every one of us here in this room has been given a certain number of years, days, hours, seconds. In one sense, there's a clock hanging over us that's ticking down, and the Lord knows what that is. It's ticking down, and one day it will reach zero. So in light of that, the decisions we make, the way we live, whether or not we live with a God consciousness will carry on into eternity one way or another. And so to embrace the reality regarding time and ultimately death, that opens us up to the greater question of what, it, what does it mean to truly live? And who are we to live for? And at the core of this is the true essence of wisdom that first we need to grasp, grasp the big picture of life and death and that there is a creator and he does have a plan. As we go on, why else are we to make good use of the time? Well, the text adds this. He says, because the days are evil, right? So we're to make the best use of time because the days are evil. John Stott, a commentator on the passage, kind of translator, sums it, sums it up like this. He says, ransom the time from its evil bondage. 
So we see that time is not merely finite just in a neutral sense, in the sense that one day we're going to run out of time and that's it. But we see rather that time is finite within the backdrop or the context of an evil world. It says the days are evil. And this reality of, of the days being evil leads to a greater urgency as time slips away. And there's a greater urgency because of two things. Because of the problem of sin and the reality of sin. And also because there's the presence of an evil ruler of this world. Satan, the devil himself. And so the backdrop for time and history is as if all of mankind is floating down a river that is headed towards a cliff. cliff in which death is imminent. And so you think all of the river, the world, the culture, humanity is flowing towards that eventual end. And the days are evil in that sense. That that's, it's all going to come to an end in one way or another. And it's only through the redemptive work of Christ that one can be saved from that ultimate end. And though we have the promise and security of salvation, we ultimately are not plucked up and removed from the river. We remain caught in the current, but we are free from the ultimate end and threat, which is eternal death. But each one of us, we must pass over the cliff. It is in this sense that time begins to take on a new meaning in which there's a felt need for our time to be redeemed. And God calls the church to this kind of redeeming use of time. And if we lose the perspective on the final destination of the current of the evil days, then we lose urgency. And when time loses its urgency, that's when we are rendered useless and ineffective in kingdom ministry. And instead we trade that when we become far too satisfied with the things of the earth, forgetting that all things will pass and we can't take anything with us. So here there's a call to properly steward our time. And so the question needs to be asked of each one of us, are you making the best use of your time? Or... Are you prone to just being ignorantly carried along with the current of the evil days? Though perhaps you'll be saved, it's likely that many of us will suffer loss. And we get a picture of this in 1 Corinthians 3.15, right? The foundation that we build on, it will be tested by fire. And if we've used materials that are not good, they'll burn away. They will not last. But if we've used materials that are ultimately of God and of the Spirit in wisdom, they will test, they'll be tested and they will stand the stand the test of the fire and carry on into eternity. So there, there's, there may not be a question for salvation for most of us here. And there might be a question of salvation for some of us, but there may not be a question of salvation, but there, there's a question of our usefulness, our utility, utility, what we're able to do in wisdom for the sake of Christ and his church and his glory. And it's likely that many of us are lacking wisdom here or we're prone to drift away from this wisdom. And we need to do some honest evaluation regarding our priorities and time. And I'll admit, 
I am certainly included among those lacking wisdom and in need of God's grace to better steward my time. Walking in wisdom seeks to make good use of time in these evil days. So let's <laughs> invite the Lord to work with us there. The second point here, we move on, is this. Walking in wisdom seeks to understand the will of the Lord. So walking in wisdom seeks to understand the will of the Lord. Verse 17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So once again, we see there is a call to reject folly, to not be foolish. But instead, what are we to do? We're to understand what the will of the Lord is. So here, here's the question. What is the will of God? How can we know it? And there's two angles through which we can look at God's will in our lives. And the first angle is this of God's general will. And what his general will is, is what his purposes are for all Christians, for all of redemptive history. And this is primarily, we see, captured through his revealed word in the Bible. And all throughout the Bible, we see this unfolding story of God's will, his purpose. And particularly in the book of Ephesians, we see that too. And actually, with a lot of clarity, we see that in the book of Ephesians. So that's the first angle. How do we understand God's general will? What is he doing for all of history and for all people? But there's also a second angle through which we can think about this, and it's God's particular will. And that is a little more personal in the sense, what are his purposes for the different particularities of our individual lives? So we see something big that's inclusive of all Christians, of all history, and then we see something that's unique and specific, that God has put us in particular places at a particular time with particular giftings, with particular desires. And we need to discern and to understand what it means, what God's will means for us where he has us. But what we have here in the book of Ephesians as part of the Bible, part of his revealed will, and part of his general will, uh, comes up, and we just ask the question, what is the will for the Lord as, as revealed in Ephesians in this context of what we're looking at? So I'll just mention a few things here that if you're familiar with this book, um, may, they might just land. You'd be like, oh, yep, know that, know that. But if, you haven't, if you're not familiar with this book, I strongly encourage you to go read it. This it's a, it's a magnific magnificent book when it comes to God's redemptive historical plan and what he's doing and the nature of the gospel and his salvation. But what is, what is God's will? What's the will of the Lord for the Ephesian church? Well, in it, God has made known the mystery of his will in Christ. And he's going to uni unite all things in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth. So throughout all the Bible, there's been a mystery of what's God's will, what's God's will, what's he doing? And in the New Testament, and in, in the life and the person of Christ, the mystery has been made clear, has been made known. And that's the, the focus of Ephesians, is trying to declare that mystery, that Christ is the one who will unite all things. And for those in Christ, 
We are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christ himself, as the cornerstone, is the one who is building us together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Christ is going to unite all things into him, and in that, he's building together a dwelling place for God to live with his people through his Spirit. And part of the mystery is that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is going to be shown to make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that God is the wise one. There, there's a plan that, that God is unveiling this mystery. And in one sense, there's, there's spiritual realities greater and higher than us looking in with awe for what God is going to do in and through the church. And we see part of his will also is that saints are equipped for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians beautifully articulates the mystery of God's will, and it really all comes down to this. It comes down to Christ. It has him at the center. It has him building a church, which is his body, It has him inviting us to participate in this kingdom ministry. So given that we are able to know something of God's general will through his word, what then does it look like for us as individuals to walk wisely in God's will? How do we discern God's particular will for our lives? Right. So generally, he's going to accomplish all these things. That's Fact, that's promise, that's going to happen. But now there's, there's a question, a pressing question. What's our role in that? How do we participate? And this is where I think this is unique and individual to each one of us as we relate to God. And I, I've been helped to think about the motif or the theme of death and resurrection. And this, is, this has been a really helpful thing just in my life as of late. We talked about some of this in the praying church um, class that we went through. But in this, as, as we are seeking God's will, you know, understand that generally, but then also to understand that particularly for our life, there's a pattern that's modeled after Christ's death, death and resurrection that comes and I think is helpful for us in our circumstances. And that in order for us to discern God's will for our life, there has to be a death of our own will and a surrender to God's will. And we we see this just well-worded in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. In that is a death of self, God's will, not mine, right? So we see something about this death here. And in this death, it becomes an alignment or a realignment of our will into God's will. And in this death, he begins to create a new life, to create new desires, new thoughts, wisdom that proceeds from a renewed heart, from a renewed mind. And so through our death, there's life that takes form and there's a resurrection of sorts. And so through this death and resurrection, then we are kind of, we come up, 
with new eyes, with new hearts, new desires, looking for how God might use us, how we might work. But to bypass the death part of this is to bypass just the wisdom and the understanding of his will for our lives. Because if we're saying, Lord, I want your will, and then we're like, la, 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 no, we're not going to hear it. So there's something of ourselves that needs, needs, to, needs to die and needs to regularly die for this resurrection. But then with this, it's not like we pray a prayer, there's a death, and then the next moment we're resurrected with a new, <laughs> new desires and we know what God's will is for our life. This is, it's more of a gradual unveiling of his particular will. And how that plays out in our individual lives will be discerned through the pattern of a Christian's meditation on the word, through a prayerful seeking of God, and also through God's providence as he orders um, events and circumstance to utilize our different personalities and giftings and desires. And so often, discerning and following God's particular will is often dynamic, and it's alive, and sometimes it's surprising. <laughs> what he's going to do is not anything we would ever planned or thought. And so it's through the Holy Spirit's guidance and his gifts that we step into the particular will that God has for each of us is we find ourselves in the greater context of his general will. And this is where the Lord is building a beautiful puzzle as he takes you know, millions of pieces throughout the ages to put together this grand picture of his salvation and his story. And each of, one of us is a piece that fits into that in some way or another. But to the degree that we can experience that and enjoy that is the degree that we are willing to die and surrender ourselves to his will and his purposes. And in this, as a new creation, there's a lot of room and a lot of freedom to become a co-laborer alongside Christ. There's not a certain set of rules or formulas that we all have to follow in the same way. Now, there's God's law and his commands, and we're to be obedient, yes. But in all of our uniqueness and particularities, God has diversely equipped and gifted the church. And we find the same general pattern in another passage that a number of us are familiar with in Romans chapter 12, right? We see death and resurrection. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Death. <laughs> That's our spiritual worship. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, right? Don't keep just going down the river. In the same way, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may discern what the will of God is. The transformation is the resurrection. It's the resurrection of, of our heart and our lives and, and being conformed to Christ. And interestingly, that's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Then you go and you look at verses 3 through uh, 8, and it talks about giftings. <laughs> right? So we see a death, a resurrection, a transformation. And then he goes, Paul goes on and talks about the different ways that we have been gifted. But we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And we have different gifts according to the grace that's given to us. Let us use them. But we can't skip the death and resurrection part before we get to our gifts part. And I think the challenge is that a lot of times we have so much of our identity tied up in our gifts and what we do and who we are 
that we kind of bypass the process where we come and surrender our lives before God and we just jump to what, we, what resonates with us most in our flesh. So come back and then come here to the gifts and understand that the gifts don't exist for you. They exist for something greater and bigger than you. So do you understand God's general will and plan in redemptive history? Do you understand your particular place in it? And perhaps you should spend some time opening God's word, bringing these questions before him. But also, if that's a question of like, how's the Lord gifted me? How is, how is he using me? Perhaps you need to invite some other brothers and sisters to speak into your life. It's often that we can see each other's giftings better than we can see our own. And that's why God has given the church around us that we can help encourage, edify, edify, come alongside each other in in that. So walking in wisdom seeks to understand the will of the Lord. Okay, the third point here. Walking in wisdom seeks to be filled with the Spirit. So walking in wisdom seeks to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, is the phrase, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Many of us have become familiar with this passage often because it's tied to an argument for Christian prohibition of alcohol. And for some of us, this this is actually a very sensitive topic because, one, either you've struggled personally with an alcohol addiction of some kind, or perhaps you've been closely connected to someone else whose life has been consumed by alcohol. So in these scenarios, there is much legitimacy to one's swearing off or skepticism of alcohol, especially where it is over-consumed and abused. And quite frankly, there, there are often horrific behaviors and, and trauma that results from that. So in one sense, we need to take very seriously this command to, uh, to not get drunk with wine. But when it comes to this passage, I don't believe that the consumption of alcohol is prohibited. But what is prohibited is a perpetual state or pattern of drunkenness. And here we see this in in the verb of uh, don't get drunk, and we also see this in the verb of be filled here in a second. But there is something here in this verb that in the present tense, it's a present, it's a... uh, continuation or a pattern. And it's something that is, uh, yeah, it continues to go on as a pattern. It's a present problem and it continues to be a problem. It's a state. So what's prohibited is the perpetual state or pattern of drunkenness. And Paul commands, he says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. And debauchery, or a perpetual, continual, ongoing state of drunkenness, has a similar association to what we looked at above in verse 11. It says, the unfruitful works of darkness. There's something about this that, if involved, and this is a pattern in our life, it's leading, it's on a path towards death. It's on a path 
um, that we need to be rescued from. So in that sense, drunkenness is a sinful manifestation of foolishness, the foolishness of folly. So there's a lot that could be said in and around alcohol and drunkenness here. But we miss the point if we make this passage merely about abstaining from alcohol. Though there can be great wisdom there. Because this passage is actually more concerned about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And how being filled with the Spirit is tied to walking in wisdom. Right? And so, with the previous two commands we see, you know, don't be foolish. Don't, don't step into folly. But here, he's saying don't, don't participate in drunkenness. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. And so, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, we need to contrast between the difference of being filled with the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit. And these are theological terms that um, you can play out and look at different passages to kind of come to these conclusions. But in short, being indwelt by the Spirit is what happens upon regeneration. When one is born again by placing saving faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell, to dwell with them. And once indwelt by the Spirit, He is there to stay. He provides assurance of salvation. And he is with you until the end, the deposit of our salvation. So indwelt by the Spirit is something that happens when new life has started in us. So then what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Ultimately, being filled with the Spirit is walking in daily or momentary dependence on the Spirit. The nature of the verb here, be filled, is also in the present tense, which means we are to be filled today and continuously going forward. The verb is passive in the sense that God is the one who must do the filling. We are a recipient of that. But as a recipient of that, we have a role. We're commanded to be filled, which means we have a role to ask and invite the Spirit to work in and through us in all circumstances. So the degree that we are inviting the Lord into our life to to work is the degree that we are being filled with the Spirit. And so functionally what this looks like is that we go about our life, as we go about our life and we find ourselves in situations of need, as we find ourselves lacking wisdom, as we find ourselves not knowing what to do, being confused, we are to seek to be filled with the Spirit. In fact, if we think about the whole context of the Christian life, all of one's life or purpose is found in relationship with God through Christ. And it's the filling of the Spirit that keeps us in close relational proximity to Christ. Walking in love and holiness, the Spirit, He convicts, He encourages, He affirms, He helps us to experience the love of God. But more than that, as image bearers, who have an understanding of the will of, of God, the filling of the Spirit is the means or wisdom through which we are empowered. The means or the wisdom through which we are empowered to participate in kingdom ministry. And if you notice, the timing of this, the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost was to energize, to mobilize the church. Right? And so where we see a mobile church is where we see the power of the Spirit present. And the Spirit does a, a, has a, a tremendous ministry for the individual. 
But the Spirit is also very missional in his purposes and in his end. And so as we think about this, this uh, mission uh, driving power of the Holy Spirit, it's also worth noting that Paul assumes the filling of the Spirit is to happen in a community context. As with most of the New Testament commands, they are addressed to the church. So the command here is not you, just you the individual in the singular sense, be filled by the Spirit, but rather you all, the Ephesian church, you all Christians, be filled with the Spirit. Now the you all certainly includes the individual, and that, that's, a, that's an important point, but there's a corporate aspect to this command that needs to be explored in how a community is to together prayerfully be filled with the Spirit together and to do that continually. So we, as we as a church are filled by the Spirit, Paul includes four things that follow and result as fruit from being filled with the Spirit. There are four marks of a Spirit-filled community. And these four marks here, as we look at them, we're just gonna, we're gonna cruise through them pretty quick. But these four marks help maintain and foster God's presence and activity within a church. And so we'll just quickly highlight them here. First we see the first one is we are filled with the Spirit. Then it says addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So as we're filled with the Spirit, you'll notice that there's a horizontal relationship here, addressing one another. And it says, it gives the word psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Those are really just synonyms to say the same thing. Um, and the point isn't to say, okay, how do, we, how do we do psalms? How do we do hymns? How do we do this? But each of them do have a connection to the word, to word and spirit worship. And so when we are filled with the spirit, one of the marks of a spirit-filled community is that the community addresses one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual worship. And as we're filled with the Spirit, there's a communal edification that takes place. There's an overflow of joy, and the end result is worship. So where we're filled by the Spirit, it has a community effect of worship. Secondly, it says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This one includes a vertical level, right? So singing and making melody who, to who? To the Lord, right? And in that, there's something about our heart through the Spirit that becomes engaged with God on a vertical level in which the singing or the melody is something that just it flows out of our heart towards God. So we see there's a horizontal level that takes place in worship. There's a vertical level as we worship. And then the third part, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In both the communal and individual context, being filled with spirit results in giving thanks always and for everything. And this is one of those things that I think in a church community, as we are able to, one, first see what God is doing, but then two, verbalize what he's doing, do you know what edification, what encouragement that brings for us to share with one another what God's doing? That's a fruit of the Spirit. We have God goggles to see him and then give praise and thanks where we see it. 
And if we're not filled with the Spirit, then we don't see it. So for those of us that are, you know, battling, you know, bitterness, complaining, or begrudging our experiences, there's in there an encouragement to be filled with the Spirit, that He would give us eyes to see and give thanks. So a community that gives thanks is a mark of a Spirit-filled community. Then lastly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there's less to say about this in detail because this verse serves kind of as a transition and header for the following sections where it talks about marriage and parents and children and bond servants and masters. But the idea is that as one is filled with the Spirit, they will walk in loving, humble, obedient, submissive relationship with God and with people. And they'll do that appropriately in the different relational contexts. So, as we're filled with the Spirit, it's our reverence for Christ that leads to a gentle, meek, servant-hearted attitude in all of our relationships. And the fear of the Lord, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, really, reverence for Christ is the ultimate end of wisdom and how we are filled with true, true wisdom as it comes to our living and relationships. So, to, to not be filled with the Spirit is to lack wisdom. To be filled with the Spirit is to step into and grow in wisdom. And we must watch carefully to see that we are walking in wisdom. But what is it that we're to watch most carefully? I think we are to watch most carefully our relational proximity to Christ. So if you see this passage and, and we land this plane here, scattered throughout this passage, every time that it says Lord, it's actually a reference to Jesus Christ himself. So understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of Jesus is. Sing and make melody to the Lord. Sing and make melody to Jesus with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So ultimately, walking in wisdom is walking in very close proximity to Christ. Jesus himself is the perfect embodiment and manifestation of wisdom. And he has sent his spirit so that we might walk as he walks. So our sanctification, our kingdom witness, our usefulness are all nothing unless we are in Christ. So in that, as we are, carefully, are careful to stay close to him, we must know him. We must know his voice. We must know his will. And we must remember that he is with us. And the Spirit bears witness to us about Jesus so that we might also bear witness to others about Jesus. There's a pay-it-forward chain there, right? As the Spirit comes and bears witness and points to and illuminates Christ, then we are called through the Spirit into that same ministry. So in the end, wisdom does not exist for us and for our glory. It exists so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known in the heavenly places and throughout all the earth. So wisdom exists to put on full display the glory of God. And we, as we embrace that as the will of the Lord, only then will we walk in God-honoring, life-giving, church-edifying, ends-of-the-earth-blessing wisdom. God uses wise living Christians to build the church in order to bring glory to his name in Christ. 
So let us keep close to Christ that we might embody wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you acknowledging that, Lord, we lack wisdom, Lord, because frequently, often we are forgetful of you and that, Lord, you are the source of wisdom in life. So, Lord, here this morning, where we have drifted or where we have forgotten, Lord, would you help us to return to you? Lord, would you make us useful for your kingdom purposes? Lord, would you bring about a death of our will that your will and your purposes might reign? And would you help us to really believe and to trust that our life and joy is found in your will for us? So, Lord, we... We are needy, we are weak, we are dependent apart from you. Lord, we need you. Please come and work, Lord, that your wisdom would be known and your glory observed by, Lord, the ends of the earth and by all the heavenly realms. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.